So there are a million lawyer jokes out there, most of which are bad. And I don't mean bad in the kind of endearing, so bad they're good dad joke way. But there is one joke I have to admit that does make me smile a little bit. Okay, so here's the joke. Four law students walk into a bar, but only two of them pass. (laughs) Oh, man. Do you get it? I think the reason I think this one is so funny is because it's both silly and kind of accurate. I mean, in some states, 40, even 50 percent of first-time test takers don't pass the bar. Just a short walk down YouTube will return plenty of tales of bar exam turmoil and woe. Let's talk about the bar exam. The bar exam is what I like to think of the first few days of hell will probably look like. Mentally exhausting. It's taking forever for it to start. Extremely tense, emotionally draining. There's one thing that makes the bar exam particularly challenging, and that's just getting out of your own head. You are confident, you are smart, you can do this, you will pass. And then just to up the anxiety quotient, even after you take the exam, you still have to wait several more months to get the results. We got it, we're downloading it, I'm downloading it. You are? Where is it? Relax, here it is, okay, here we go. You ready? Congratulations! Okay, the results are up, let's see. Did I really pass? Oh, oh my god. Oh, I'm so Of course, getting one's bar results back is frequently not a happy occasion, one that can lead to rescinded job offers, soul searching, and starting the whole process over again. Y'all, I failed the bar exam. I mean, that's the, the bottom line up front is I failed the bar exam. Studying for that test was literally the hardest thing I've ever done, and it said I didn't pass. Please say pass. Please say pass. Please say pass. No! But regardless of whether you passed the bar exam or didn't, many lawyers, including more than a few law school deans, say the whole bar exam process is a big fat waste of time. That instead of dedicating all of those resources toward cramming for a one-off test, a more efficient way to credential new attorneys would be to simply make it part of law school. It's a practice known as diploma privilege. We talked a little bit about diploma privilege as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic in the previous episode, but as the risks of COVID start to recede, the calls to keep diploma privilege aren't going away. Sam Skolnick is a reporter for Bloomberg Law who's been reporting on this issue. Hey there, Sam. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Appreciate it. So, Sam, 
you've written a lot about the challenges states were forced to kind of solve on the fly as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Can you tell me which jurisdictions went the route of diploma privilege and what was the aftermath of those decisions? Sure. So late last year, states like Utah, Washington State, Oregon, Louisiana, and the District of Columbia decided that for one administration on the bar, we're going to test out this new way to allow lawyers in through this program called Emergency Diploma Privilege. When I talked to these states after they started admitting folks several months later, what I found was that when added together, they had licensed more than 1,000 people to practice law without ever taking a bar exam. State officials and private employers like large law firms also told me that they were very happy with these new hires. So that's an interesting point, but at the same time, Utah, Oregon, Louisiana, these aren't exactly the largest markets in the legal industry. So how did this issue play out in states with more lawyers, more law firms? So even the largest states were weighing diploma privilege as an answer, including New York and California. And and those two states are outsized in the legal industry because so many of the biggest firms are headquartered in those states and they have so many lawyers compared with other states. What they found when they, they came up against a group of um, uh, folks who, someone called them protectionists, but what they claimed was that it's all about competence and it's all about public protection. Another way of looking at this issue, a more cynical approach, I guess, would be to say that the notion of public protection is just another way of throwing your weight around, whether you're talking about the state bar associations or state supreme courts, the National Conference of Bar Examiners, to say nothing of the bar prep industry. I mean, there are lots of people here with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So it's a couple of things, right? I mean, you hit on one argument that a lot of reformers make and that they say these traditionalists don't really care as much about public protection as they claim to. Maybe they care about it somewhat, but really it's a protectionist racket. I mean, here you have bar groups that are lawyers regulating themselves and what they want to make sure of is a limited stream of incoming attorneys and that the rules are written uh, just so, so that the existing attorneys can have advantage at a return, basically. Well, in addition to the states you've already mentioned, Wisconsin has actually offered diploma privilege all along. In fact, it's the only state that's never required in-state graduates to sit for the bar exam. And up until now, you know, Wisconsin's just been kind of an outlier, off on its own. But now that we have these other state experiments as well, in your opinion, does this change the discussion going forward? Look, Wisconsin, I can tell you, I, you know, I was uh, at one point thinking of doing a story just on Wisconsin. And when you talk to uh, folks there, including law firm leaders, uh, you know, from firms that are based in Milwaukee and others who have to employ a lot of these folks, and you say, look, compare your incoming class of associates who didn't have to take the bar versus, you know, the others from out of state who did, and they say, you know, there's no difference. Sam Skolnick covers the legal industry for Bloomberg Law. You can find his extensive reporting on the bar exam at Bloomberg Law or on the terminal or by following him on Twitter at Sam Skolnick. That's S-A-M-S-K-O-L-N-I-K. One of these people who was impacted by the emergency use of diploma privilege was Efrain Hudnell. So started law school in 2017 at Seattle University School of Law. 
graduated in May of 2020 and have been with the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office since October 2020. Efrain, you're also a member of a coalition of law graduates called United for Diploma Privilege, which has been very active in pushing states to consider alternative approaches to licensure. So take me back to the spring of 2020, if you could. By the time you graduated from law school, COVID was already wreaking havoc in many states, with Washington being among the first to see really widespread infections. Sure. Yeah, I uh, got my materials, I think, in March of 2020, then started bar prep along with everybody else. And uh, it was around that time that COVID started to lock things down. So we started to have some conversations internal to uh, folks in my law school about, is this going to be something that affects the bar exam? So April 17th is when we first interacted with our board of governors that runs the Bar Association. And the conversation started, like I said, internal to my university, my school of law in Seattle. And at the time, I was part of the student government. I realized this is probably a conversation that all graduates here in the state of Washington are are having. So reached out to my counterparts in uh, uh, Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, and University of Washington, uh, also in Seattle, just a little bit north of us. Um, Started the conversations with them, realized, yeah, they're also concerned. And they were in the middle of writing their own letters, preparing to interface with the Board of Governors themselves. And uh, we got to talk when we are united in our cause here. Let's present a unified front that all graduates from law schools in the state of Washington are concerned about this. So it wasn't until June 14th when the state Supreme Court made the decision to grant diploma privilege to the people who were scheduled to sit for the July bar. And by this point, Efreen, you had already been studying full-time for several months. So were you relieved when you found out you wouldn't have to take the test? Uh, Very, very much relieved. Um, The world was very much in flux, as we can all recall. Uh, There's no no telling how long this was going to be the new, you know, the quote-unquote new normal. And it just seemed we in Washington State, and I imagine many other jurisdictions, were between a rock and a hard place. Uh, we had the uniform bar examination. There was no alternative to in-person testing at that time. So the so the alternative was uh, Washington State could offer it on time for those who were signed up for it, or we could postpone and test in, I believe, October. And as you know, law students are expected to take time off uh, during the summer. Most of us don't work. If you're doing it right, you sign up for these, you know, two, three, four thousand dollar prep courses, and your your job is to uh, study for six, seven days a week until you test in about July. And postponing until October means you're not making money for another two, three, four months, up to six months, maybe eight months in some cases after you graduate. That's just an unsustainable position for most people. Uh, I frankly didn't have the funds to continue to not work beyond the original plan. And um, I certainly didn't want to lock myself in a room with 700 other people. So one of the many side effects of the COVID emergency is that for the first time in decades, there were more states than just Wisconsin granting diploma privilege. In fact, Washington stood up its own bar licensure task force to look at this very question. And we should note that you are actually a member of that task force. So I guess that means if two years down the road, there isn't a spike in malpractice suits or complaints about the attorneys who were granted emergency diploma privilege, that seems like a strong case for eliminating the bar going forward. Yes? Yeah, so I should mention that um, our charter ends in December of 2022. And I think, I don't know how deliberate that was by the Supreme Court by issuing that that expiration date, but it just so happens to fall just a few months shy of the three-year mark for uh, the folks that were admitted by way of diploma privilege. Uh, And I I think that that three-year mark is important because for most jurisdictions, reciprocity kicks in 
is minimal three years of practice in the, the originating jurisdiction. And so I think you're right. We are living, breathing uh, examples of um, this bar exam. In many ways, it's a paper drill and it serves as a superficial barrier to entry, one that does not benefit the public or, or clients. So, Efrain, as you know, all of the states that went with diploma privilege in 2020 have now gone back to the bar exam, although this time it was administered remotely. How do you feel about that? Do you think remote testing is where we should be going forward? Uh, I think it's it's unfortunate. We've definitely backpedaled a bit, in my opinion. Last summer, it was a lot more pragmatic, um, which, again, it came down to there is no feasible way you can shove 700 students in a room and issue them a standardized test. It's not possible with the, with the public health considerations. Uh, I, I think we've kind of gotten used to the idea of remote testing. And so now we've we just sort of have hand waved away uh, the, the considerations that come with that. But the remote testing is not a, is not a solution here. Um, I, I think the conversations that were had last summer and continue to this day uh, exposes that there's there are multiple players holding themselves out as the credentialing authority for what lawyers have to go through in order to practice law, be it the ABA in their accreditation process of law schools, the uh, law school admissions council assessing one's viability as a law student, or be it uh, the NCBE uh, asserting that their test is the uh, is the test of competence for a, an attorney. None of these are synced or anchored to what the needs of the profession actually are in delivering services to clients or the greater public. Efrain Hudnell is a recent graduate of the Seattle University School of Law, now working with the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. Efrain, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So we're going to hear more about the pros and cons of diploma privilege in practice. But before we do, a brief message from an icon of financial markets, the White Album of Research Platforms. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bloomberg Terminal. If knowledge is power... The Bloomberg Terminal is your power up, connecting you to real-time financial data, market-moving news, powerful analytics, and an influential network of financial decision makers around the world. Share ideas, negotiate trades, and gain the insight you need to make more informed decisions. See how the Terminal can take your workflow to the next level at Bloomberg.com professional. You're listening to Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group. I'm Adam Allington. Today on the podcast, we're talking about alternatives to the bar exam and specifically making credentialing just another function of law school. Back in 2014, the state of Iowa was looking seriously at adopting diploma privilege in that state. A special committee of the Iowa State Bar Association was constructed to study the issue Guy Cook is an attorney based in Des Moines who chaired that committee. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity to speak to you regarding the ISBA diploma privilege and Blue Ribbon Committee rec- recommendation to the court. Let me just uh, give a little background and then I'll get to my remarks. Cook addressed the court for about 10 minutes. And in no uncertain terms, he's saying, yes, we should adopt diploma privilege in Iowa. In fact, he says this will actually help students be better prepared to work in Iowa. I have to say, this kind of surprised me because, you know, here you have an organization representing predominantly white male lawyers, smack dab in the middle of the country. I mean, if you ever expected someone to say, gosh darn it, I had to pass the bar, so you should too, 
it would be this very scenario. But Cook says just the opposite. You know, there are some folks who also say that the bar exam protects the public and, and weeds out the incompetent, as I said. But when you really look at what we have here, there's really one question with two choices. Is it better on this hand to have an exam after three years of law school, four years of undergraduate school, one exam that is multiple choice with a handful of essays by an outside vendor that doesn't test over Iowa law as the barrier to admission? Or, on the other hand, three years of specified coursework as set out by the Iowa Supreme Court in collaboration with the law schools and the bar? It seems to me the answer is obvious, and it's the diploma privilege. This presents a unique opportunity, and I, I urge you to take this opportunity, this unique opportunity that presently exists. Except the Iowa Supreme Court doesn't take the opportunity, and a few days later issues a ruling declining the task force's recommendation without any explanation of their thinking. Hello, Justice Wiggins. This is Adam from Bloomberg Law. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. Uh, before we jump in, I just wanted to confirm you retired as a judge on the Iowa Supreme Court earlier this year. Yes? I think it was last year, 2020. Okay, got it. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about 2014 and the push. David Wiggins is a retired justice of the Iowa Supreme Court and was on the bench for the diploma privilege decision. In Iowa, we uh, looked at it and we studied it. And, you know, I think the main reason, at least for me, and I think many other members of the court, is that this court is obligated to admit attorneys, to discipline attorneys, and to regulate the practice of law by attorneys. And if we gave diploma privileges, we would be giving up that responsibility as the gatekeepers. And we didn't think it was right for the people of the state of Iowa to uh, not have, an, uh, have the court being the gatekeeper rather and let the law schools do it. So that was really our reason why we didn't go to diploma privilege. So what's your response to the broad argument that proponents of diploma privilege make that a student who attends an ABA-accredited law school for three years, takes all the required classes, and graduates in good standing – that that is, in fact, a better measure of one's legal competency than their score on the bar exam. Well, the, we don't know what the student did to pass law school, whether he or she had tutoring, whether he or she barely got by, whether he or she was a, uh, an A student. Um, the bar exam tests basic knowledge and basic subjects that you should know if you're going to practice law. And that is the best indicator for us as to whether or not you're competent. But what about the argument that Mr. Cook made that adopting diploma privilege would actually give the court greater input into credentialing Iowa lawyers by allowing them to define the curriculum students would have to complete in lieu of the bar exam? Well, the, you know, the court is not in the business of educating, and we are far from competent to decide what courses should be taken, at what level they should be taught, and how deep they should be taught, and what are the requirements for passing each course. That's not what the Supreme Court does. We take students or young people or old people who have uh, passed law school and we, uh, we require a test. It's a uniform test. It's required in many states now 
And uh, that's the goal. We're not in the business of deciding what courses people should or shouldn't take and how they should be taught and what were the minimum standards and what books should be used. That's not our business. So this point seems pretty logical on its face. I mean, I think most people would agree that the courts aren't in the business of teaching or curriculum development. But by the same token, in most states, the courts are the ones saying we are the gatekeepers. You know, we're the ones who set the standard over who does and doesn't get to practice law. And so then to just turn around and say we don't have an opinion about the entire process that precedes the bar exam, that doesn't really square either. Well, it's that, you know, we are responsible for admitting lawyers. And the best way for us to know whether or not you are competent or for a court to know you're competent is the bar exam. I don't know, you know, a law student's at school and they've invested two years and they're going to flunk a course. I mean, would a law professor do that or try to make some kind of arrangement so the person could at least pass the course? I mean, I don't know all those circumstances. and those ha- That happens in law schools where people are given the benefit of the doubt. And when you have a bar exam, our bar exam, you get a certain number, you pass, you don't, you don't. And we don't have do-overs and excuses. But the numbers are there. As mentioned before, Wisconsin is the only state to offer permanent diploma privilege for graduates of its two in-state schools. However, the University of New Hampshire also allows a limited number of students who've completed certain curricula and a separate exam to bypass the bar. Dan Takaji is the dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School. Dean, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. So, Dan, you went to Yale, which is one of the most prestigious law schools in the U.S. How would you say your bar exam experience was similar or different to those of your students at Wisconsin? Yeah. So Yale Law School has a reputation as being a very strong law school, but not necessarily a place in which people learn the black letter law. So I had a lot of cramming that I did have to do during that summer. I I actually wound up taking two bar exams uh, immediately after law school, Massachusetts and New York, and then wound up practicing in neither of those states, but instead going to practice in California. And so a year and a half later, I had to take uh, a third bar exam. But it was a, you know, it was a, it was um, quite um, in uh, ordeal, maybe too strong a word, but it, it was certainly a lot of work. And at the end of the day, I don't really think that I retained very much of what I learned through that process. When it comes to the question of the bar exam, What do you say to people who say that, you know, maybe the bar isn't perfect, but it's still important to make sure lawyers have a basic understanding of legal principles? I would say your ability to succeed in law school is a much better indicator of your your having those learning skills, right? It's not so much having the knowledge of the law in your head, but having those learning skills and your ability to succeed in law school in a variety of courses is a much better indicator of your having that kind of skills than your ability to perform well on a very brief exam where you're basically downloading a huge amount of information and then forgetting it not too long afterwards. What about the idea that the bar exam serves as a kind of check against the worst impulses of, say, 
lower ranked law schools to maybe boost profits by accepting students with lower LSAT scores or, say, allowing professors to skip teaching certain fundamental principles that aren't as interesting to teach. Yeah, from where I'm standing, the bar exam doesn't serve those functions and in some ways runs directly against those worthy objectives. Let's start with students. I I, I think particularly where I'm standing as a law school dean, we have extremely strong incentives not to admit unqualified students. And that is largely the fact that uh, we'll be punished for it, um, not least in U.S. news rankings, uh, if we admit a lot of students with low grades or low test scores. I'd say also that in terms of what we teach, well, actually, the alternative to the bar exam that we have in Wisconsin of the diploma privilege provides a much stronger incentive for teachers to teach and for students to learn substantive law. Um, And it's a great contrast with what I described a moment ago, what I got in law school, which was, you know, great in terms of teaching me theory, but wasn't necessarily learning substantive law. Um, Here at Wisconsin, we have to teach a large amount of substantive law, at least to those students who elect to pursue the Wisconsin bar privilege. And so our students uh, must necessarily learn that law as a part of their law school education. As one of the only states to provide diploma privilege, do you think the Wisconsin system gives graduates a leg up or any kind of advantage over students who are required to take the bar? It is really a fantastic advantage here at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Those students who complete the requirements are sworn into the bar just a few days after they graduate. So they are ready to uh, pursue jobs immediately. For students at other law schools, you know, there are some employers that may hire you without being admitted to the bar, but there are a number of employers that want to wait. And so it's a great advantage for our students on the job market. And it's no small thing because, you know, law students nowadays graduate with a lot of debt. And just to underscore that last point, according to a recent ABA survey, the average debt incurred for three years of law school totaled $108,000 and over $200,000 for black lawyers. Dan Takaji is the dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School in Madison. Dan, it was nice speaking with you. Good luck with the rest of the semester and go Badgers. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. So up to this point, we've spoken to lots of people across the legal industry, but the one voice we haven't heard from are the firms themselves. So can you please introduce yourself, say who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is David Kurutz. I'm the managing partner of Michael Best and Friedrich, a law firm with offices in seven states, and three of our larger offices are in the state of Wisconsin. David, we just heard from the dean of the University of Wisconsin Law School. So, you know, state pride aside, how would you say diploma privilege factors into your firm's hiring decisions? We've been able to deal with the diploma privilege uh, without it being what I would consider either a major pro or a major con in terms of who we hire. 
the number one thing that's the absolute requirement is that an attorney be admitted to practice in the state in which they're you know, looking to do the work. So if you look at the diploma privileges, we're actually looking at you know, your academic record, the rigor of your academic schedule, uh, your skill and uh, work experience, as well as the drive. So you're taking a lot of other factors. Uh, certainly we will look at Grade Point from uh, Wisconsin and Marquette. As you know, David, as a substitute for the bar exam, the law schools in your state are required to teach courses on state-specific law. Do you think that's a good system, maybe one other states would want to emulate? Yeah, I'm a little bit torn. Uh, the way I look at it is uh, what Marquette and Madison, or University of Wisconsin, do is they do have a number of courses that attorneys are required to take. So the full breadth of electives after your you know, core courses in law school aren't quite there like they are at other law schools. And I think there is a benefit both ways. I think requiring certain state courses unique to Wisconsin law is one of the reasons you can say, well, that is good for the public. It's good for the legal profession. It's good for the state to have attorneys wave it to the bar, but they've already taken that base. That said, you know, when you're especially at the beginning of your legal career, whether you've worked before or you've just come out of uh, undergrad, there's a benefit to taking a number of different courses and really getting a flavor for the things that you might be able to take if you have a greater breadth of electives. So I think Wisconsin and Marquette do it the right way. Should other states do it? Uh, I'm a little torn. Huh. That's interesting. So it sounds like you really don't think the Wisconsin model would transfer onto every state or even every law school. Is that because Wisconsin only has two law schools? So for lack of a better term, it's easier to manage quality control? We are well familiar with the University of Wisconsin as well as Marquette's Law School. We know the deans of the law school. We know the rigor. We know the curriculum. And there is that relationship where you're, these are quality law schools, quality professors. The deans take notice and they're doing the, if you will, the weeding out or the uh, measuring of achievement and not just passing them through. So I don't think the bar is everything, but I do get worried if you have a number of law schools, you do the, only the online law schools. You know, uh, there is that first year that they, you know, the, the old adage, they scare you to death. Well, there's a reason they do that. It's to get you ready to think on your feet, analyze, look at case law, look at statutory law in a certain manner. Uh, so uh, if you just said every law school that was potentially accredited got to wave in and there was no bar exam, to me that would take away from some states that I think do need something else beyond just letting somebody go to law school, get a passing grade and say, I'm, I'm now qualified. Of course, anyone who wants to work in Wisconsin but graduated out of state still needs to take the Wisconsin bar exam. That was the case for the 145 people who were signed up to take the Wisconsin bar in July of 2020. In May, three graduates of the University of Minnesota Law School brought a petition to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court requesting emergency diploma privilege for out-of-state grads. This was contingent upon the completion of all Wisconsin-specific coursework and 800 hours of supervised practice. The court dismissed the petition, and the test went forward as scheduled for July 28 and 29. And that's where we're going to end the discussion for today. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington. 
Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group podcasts and also served as editor for this episode. If you have a comment or an idea for a future topic, you can reach out to me anytime on Twitter at A-A-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N. Thanks again for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.